0: Welcome back to the Northeastern Data Initiative Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Weiss, and today I'm joined by a STEAM guest, Neil Hoyne, the Chief Measurement Strategist over at Google. Neil, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing wonderful, Eric. Thank you so much for having
0: me. Thank you for coming along. Before we dive into your new book and a couple of different questions about everything marketing, how about you give a little intro into what you do and how you got there?
1: Oh, boy, you know, that's that's probably the best question. A lot of people ask me, like, what what do you do at Google? Because I've been here now for almost 11 years. You know, entirely during that time, my my real focus is understanding how do people, how do companies actually use data to improve their business? So I know there's a lot of, of inherent, you know, value towards, you know, just what data is, what data can do. A lot of people say, you know, data is the new oil. But there's always that question to say, well, where does the value actually come from? And so a lot of companies collecting data building dashboards spreadsheets implementing crm systems and then at the end of the day they kind of sit there and they say are we doing this right are we a data-driven company now and they always feel like they have more progress to go so it's kind of been a discovery to say well for those companies that are considered to be data-driven and best in class what are they doing differently and as it turns out it's a little bit more than just capturing more data and building more tools It's just they look at data and how they use it in fundamentally different ways than other companies. And so when we look at my role, it's really understanding how to answer that question and kind of package it up in a way that makes sense for companies that aspire to be more data-driven to actually be able to implement those changes within their own business.
0: And there are many pitfalls in trying to become more data-driven, especially in a world where a lot of executives and chiefs are looking to become more data-driven but aren't really sure what that really means even for them you have started that defining process, if not trying to culminate it into a book uh, converted, which will be published, hopefully today, if you want to dive into what you touch on in your book, maybe what our readers can look for.
1: I mean, it starting from the, the top and building on that question. It's really just helping companies understand, you know, where does value come from in their data. But going back a little bit further, when I started the project, I realized that very few people are interested in reading data books. It's just, it's a hard category and people have so little time in their day, in their evenings to say, let's sit down and think about data. And so what I really started with was I started to say, well, how can I approach the subject of data in a way that's exciting to anyone, even non-technical people, even people that said, no, this is not the type of book for me, but still realize the importance and the role that data has in their organization, in their work. And so that was the starting point to say, all right, well, we have we have a question You know, how do companies use data? We have an approach, let's make something that's accessible to everyone. And then just a little bit more focus came in when we talk about these best practices, is that what we see with companies that are really best in class are that they look at their business in a fundamentally different way through that data. And what I mean by that is a lot of companies are short-term focused, which is to say, here's an immediate KPI we wanna drive, number of leads we capture on our website, the number of people who download an app, number of people who buy our products. And the difficulty with companies is that when they're looking at performance in that respect there's only so much they can use that data for because really they're looking at customers within just a few moments a few minutes when they get to the website saying i need them to do this action right away and they're really boxed into a corner because there's not a lot of space they can maneuver if a customer is not ready to commit and fill out that lead form if they're not ready to buy then you're kind of out of options because that's what your business depends on is that short-term result And so this book just takes it from a little bit of a different perspective to say, when we look at successful data-driven organizations, the biggest change is that they're giving themselves more room. Instead of looking at individual transactions, they're looking at larger relationships they have with their customers, where all of the data that they capture can be used in some way. They can understand and optimize to many more opportunities and moments for those customers. And they can also have confidence that those customers are going to behave in certain ways in the future. So they're almost leveraging the latest in that predictive measurement instead, again, of just being boxed into what's happening at this moment, this day, this interaction.
0: And that's a great insight, being able to draw a connection between all these different data points. Because just optimizing for more data, like you've hinted before, is not necessarily great when you can't compare the two or three or 100 data points you have on someone. So it actually reminds me of a great podcast guest that we've had on recently, John Hay, who's over at the Red Sox, who was struggling through the problem of a bunch of different touch points, but none of them were correlated. You know, okay, we see that people are buying tickets, and we also see that other people are, let's say, you know, buying jerseys or other things, but we don't know if those are the same people, different people. How would you recommend to other maybe Chiefs or people in the weeds of the data? Where should they start looking to draw those connections? And if there are ways that they are you know, focused on bringing those data points together, what might be some insights there for them?
1: Well, I think you touched on the right thing. When we you talked about individual tickets, when we talk about other things that people can buy, that's the typical orientation that a lot of companies are built around, which is here's the, again, these KPIs that I mentioned. We want to drive these and then they try to figure out how to connect it. When we're looking at this larger, more holistic approach, what we're really looking at is individual customers and this idea of lifetime value, which is to say, for each individual customer, for you, for me, how much are we going to be worth to that organization over our, almost our lifetime, you know, until I guess we're, we we stop becoming fans of our respective sports teams. I grew up in Chicago, so I'm a big Cubs fan still. We look at it We look at it from that goal is to say we really want to look at that lifetime relationship. Now, when we're looking at that, a lot of things become easier. Now, sometimes when we think about identifying and telling that customer story, we think it's exponentially harder. But the way that these models are developed are actually pretty straightforward, which is for any customer that we have, we just need a way to group together their transactions with our business. We don't need every dimension. Those can come in later and they're not required for that prediction. We simply need to say... Who are these customers? How much have they spent with us, regardless of if that was buying concessions or buying gifts or buying tickets? Where is that data that we have? And then can we do that across all of our customers? And it's kind of nice for a lot of businesses because we may have difficulty picking up on all those subtle cues and tying them to the same customer, but we generally know when people pay us money and we try to get that information. And then once we have that information, we can start comparing that customer behavior against other customers over time. And that's enough for us to get that prediction and now all of a sudden the company can say these have been some of our best fans these have been some of our worst these fans are going to generate a lot of value long term but it may take a little bit more time to develop organizations get to ask that question again now around the relationship instead of focusing just on the discrete products
0: that's great also a great point that the data that we have is usually centered on making money Uh, how many different touch points can we get about a person actually interacting with the brand on money terms, all of them, maybe largely with the company in interest or in an advertisement, less so. But uh, another point I wanted to touch on what you just said, there are analytics everywhere. And what you're saying is we need to connect uh, different parts of the business basically together, not just different parts of the customer, because the customer might be Having analytics and sales, having analytics and marketing, how do we tie those all together? Not to dive into a big branded nearly branded but keyword of digital <laughs> transformation. but oh boy, yeah. oh yeah. but how can we how can we assure that these different teams who might not even share the same data be able to connect with each other when they're not even looking at the same people until they realize they are?
1: Oh, the perpetual issue. Oh, if we can ever sort out data as an industry, imagine how great we would be. Sure, sure. So first, let's do some expectation setting. The goal with with any of these projects is not to be perfect with the data that you have. Uh, I'm convinced that that's impossible. Even when you have salespeople entering things in CRM systems or hoping to identify customers at every touch point, the goal simply should be to be better at this than other organizations you compete with, to be better as an organization than you were the day before. Which means that even though you may not be able to get every team and every system integrated if you're able to get two different teams to talk to each other and connect that data i consider that to be progress far too often companies say well we want to do this type of transformation as they'll often call it they lay out all the systems that need to be integrated together and that really does two things one is it pushes a project out for about two or three years because it's a monumental task and the second thing is even if they're able to do it It tends to freeze all innovation around data during that time because no one wants to bring on a new data set. So you're actually slowing down your capabilities and hoping to integrate everything for value that you'll see in years. And I strongly advise against it. Instead, I say connect two data sets and then make it three data sets. Look at what you learned through that process around how you can standardize it, how you can make it easier. Uh, Jeff Bezos had a wonderful memo when he was at Amazon where he was very clear to teams that were developing new data sets that they should default almost to an open orientation. So instead of looking at every team's and every department's own data as their own that they can be the gatekeepers of, it's instead the opposite is to say, you should build with the expectation that you should be sharing this data set with other people. I doubt that this was a spontaneous insight and something more that Amazon learned trying to integrate their data sets. It's a lot easier to build from one orientation than another. As your company goes through integrating just two or three or four data sets together, you'll start to learn those lessons to say, what can we do to get the rest? But it's just kind of foolish from what I've seen to try to do it all at one time, because you're really not able to understand those learnings and you lead into those problems that I mentioned earlier.
0: From that, when you're trying to get everything all at once, maybe you're slowing down your business in something that you've talked about in your book for years, if not months. And all of the things that you're trying to measure are gone because, well, you were too busy trying to build out the data. So it's a very, very interesting point.
1: To, to be clear, and this is just one of the things that I just I always struggle with, is that oftentimes companies sit there, and this is the reason I made the comment, thinking that everyone else has sorted this out. That their competitors have sorted it out and have perfect and clean and organized data. That, that Google as a company has perfect, clean, organized data, and it's a deficiency on their part. Nobody has perfectly clean, organized, and structured data. In fact, I joke around that even on some projects I've come across that 80% of our engineering time is spent simply cleaning data because it hasn't been done before. And I mention that explicitly because I want to relieve a little bit of pressure from the listeners to say, I think a lot of people get caught up in this frustration that they're behind. And I say, no, 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 it's really not, not the case, but you do have to take action and you have to take action because that allows you to pull ahead. That allows you to advance beyond the understanding your competitors may have when they're trying to build their perfect roadmap and blueprint and will struggle for years without making any substantive progress.
0: How do you know necessarily that you should be optimizing for more information gathering when you're doing all of these data combinations and concatenations rather than, okay, we need to get to the money as quickly as possible.
1: Well, that's that's exactly it and this is again going back to the book one of the approaches that i advocate for and i i call it it's very early on starting simple is to say that when we look at things like customer lifetime value something as powerful as that metric relies largely on transaction data it doesn't require all the additional dimensions of the products that they bought the channels they came in on what device they were using what time of day if they use coupon codes all these infinite dimensions they can come in later but effectively you can build this very basic prediction and say what customers are going to be great, what customers are going to be less so. And then you are able to segment based on the data that you have. So effectively you're doing this first to say, well, who are the great customers? And then the second part of the process, which can continue to go on is, well, why? And in those cases, organizations just start with the data that they have available. So they're not trying to build a perfect profile to say they have these 20 attributes. they are simply saying, hey, does lifetime value change if somebody has our mobile app or not. And if it does, we can test that hypothesis to say, does our mobile app drive more value in the relationship? And if it doesn't, then there's a product question. Are we using our mobile app for the right reasons? What product category did they buy from? What coupon code? These are all hypotheses that companies can test now with really just three columns of data. And as more data becomes available, they can understand that relationship to growth and to value and to take action but there's no step where people take a step back and say, hey, we can't do anything until we capture all the data cleaned in one place because we'll be waiting for years.
0: We've talked a lot about the high level of data and collection and all that. On the other end of the spectrum is the specific metrics that are gathered in that data. A great quote that we had talked about previously was from Andy Grove over at Intel formerly that every metric would need a paired adverse metric of the first. Could you kind of touch on your perspective of that and where that plays into the data collection process?
1: At a high level, it's simply acknowledging that we're human. We have incentives, we have motivations. And if people give you a target to hit and you know your career progress, your team's growth, your general success in business is determined on the success or increase of that metric then you will take actions to do that. You will drive towards that metric. But what companies fail to recognize is that there may be, as, as Andy Grove puts it, adverse consequences to other areas of the business that are not being directly measured. And so if you simply say, we wanna grow new customers at all costs, I'm not surprised when you see retailers welcome everybody to the site and say, if you give us your email address, if you're effectively a new customer of ours, we will give you 15% off. I must be known by at least 45, 50 different new customer IDs at some retailers because of that incentive. But if they're only looking at new customer growth, they're sitting there and be like, look how many new customers we're growing and what should be our market share. And in reality, they didn't look at those other metrics and say, well, what's the lifetime value? Are these customers coming back? And so that's kind of the problem that we run into with data. Sometimes people say, well, we need more social media followers. And we used to run an exercise. Where, you know, someone actually raised their hand and said, hey, we can buy social media followers at like a thousand dollars for five or a thousand followers for five dollars. And then someone asked to say, "Well, well, those are likely bots. Those aren't any good quality, legitimate followers. Somebody said, yeah, but it grows the metric. And it's not like we necessarily have a metric in place that says what's the quality of our followers today. We just kind of blindly assume that they're good because of how much money we spend. And so really what we're looking at within organizations is that for any metric that you assign, it's worth going through the exercise to say almost how could that metric uh, negatively impact other areas of our business. So if we're acquiring new customers, could that lead us down the path where we're not acquiring the best quality customers? Again, offset by lifetime value. If we're acquiring those social media followers, they come and they, they, they engage with our business, so to speak. But are we creating value? And again, that's where lifetime value comes in. Are these customers going to stick around? Are they going to spend? And so even if it's not lifetime value, I think any business benefits by going through an exercise to say, what type of manipulations could be happening to your data and to your metrics that may be escaping notice and leading your business down to the wrong conclusions?
0: Are there any specific pain points that you see from the optimization of a specific metric or set of metrics in marketing over either your history or perspective or experience in the field?
1: I'd say the strongest one is just generally a lack of understanding across organizations as to what metrics truly mean. The caveats, weaknesses. And for instance, here's a great example is that uh, what we saw in organizations when Apple made changes to the way that email clicks and opens were measured. So for the uninitiated, there was a change that happened uh, in the towards the end of 2021 where Apple said for their native mail applications, both on laptops and their iPhones, that consumers could have the option to opt out of tracking. And so this represents back of the envelope about 16% of your market. All of a sudden in Q3, Q4, email opens and email clicks decreased. And you'd be surprised as to how many executives I spoke to who said, oh, well, for whatever reason, email's no longer effective for us as an organization. Like our performance must be dropping. People don't like our messages. They're tuning out when it was really just a change in the way things could be measured. So fundamentally, you have a channel that's working the same way, but the metrics are being interpreted in a different lens. and being interpreted like an absolute value. And so generally, how do you overcome this? You overcome this by awareness and by this exercise to say, here's really what this metric means. Here's what we know from this metric. Here's what we don't know about this metric. And making sure that nobody can leave it simply to a footnote or pass it off to somebody else in an organization, and so they simply follow a trend line up or down. There's a lot of changes that are happening right now because of technical change, because of privacy changes, third-party cookies going away, that's impacting the ability of companies to measure. And the only way that they can make appropriate decisions if they know how their KPIs are being impacted.
0: If you're looking for metrics that are always being looked at, if you're looking at the metrics that are only truly being able to be measured correctly, it's like that analogy of searching only where the light is. You know, it's easier to search here because, well, you know it and you know that it's complete. And as soon as maybe there's a little bit less light and the experience is a little bit more dim, looks like we don't have the data anymore.
1: Well, it goes back to that that question, that motivation behind the book. That exercise of diving into data is boring. I get it. Like, nobody wants to sit there in a meeting. You have important decisions to make. You need to grow the business. And is it the right time to be like, let's really talk about what this metric that we've been using for years. (laughs) Now we want to go through and understand the strengths and weaknesses. Companies worry that it leads to paralysis, that there's indecision. They're going to realize when they see the imperfections of any metric, they kind of write off. Yeah, we know all metrics are flawed. And what I'm saying here is from working across thousands of companies, This point of view is so prevalent that any company that's able to have that conversation to go a little bit further, to get a better assessment of risk, to get a better guidance is to say, this is what we need to capture, to be able to be curious about what those additional supporting metrics are, they are winning in their industries. And it's not more people, it's not larger budgets, it's not more software, it's just a simple understanding of the world around you and what these metrics can and cannot say
0: we've spoken a lot about how current decision makers might not be up to the task of understanding what metrics are or what they really mean for the business outside of their own experience. Could you maybe hint at what a up and coming CMO, a CMO in the future could emulate as to provide kind of concise value add to their work, but balance that against having their heads in the sand or in this case, (laughs) head in the data really?
1: Well, I'm I'm optimistic that as generations pass, even though, you know, the the younger generation of marketers that they will bring some of these lessons because we see them being taught, you know, through, you know, undergraduate MBA level marketing programs to master's in business analytics programs. People are picking up on these lessons and they're training the next generation of leaders. But I'll tell you a few things that I look for. Number one is when if a new CMO comes into a business, the very first question is, do they try to change the business to fit a particular metric? Because that's usually damaging. To come in and to say, hey, we want to start using lifetime value. How do, we, how do we mold our business to fit lifetime value? It's actually opposite. With lifetime value or any other metrics, it's how do you fit them into the existing organization? The organization was already successful. We don't want to abandon those principles, those people, and disrupt teams. We simply want to figure out, well, where is its place? How can it fit in? And so, a lot of organizations think, "Ah, oh, well, we we aren't going in, we aren't going left, so now we need to go right." In other cases, there's a transition point, and these are often the most successful transitions or transformations, if you will, that I see, is that they spend the time to get people familiar, to train other people in the organization to see data as they see it, and also to be open to those lessons. So, having open, candid conversations with even analysts to say, "Hey, you're coming up with these numbers." What do these numbers mean and what do they not mean? Where are their risks? To look at proposals that are already going through to say, we made this decision based on this data. Does everybody really agree on this data? Or is there something that we're missing? And these are, again, conversations most companies won't hold. But just to kind of revisit those decisions, not necessarily to challenge who made the decision and if we spent money in a good way or bad way, but almost doing a post-mortem on the business or parts of the business to say, what did we learn from this So if we spent a whole bunch of money, we acquired a whole bunch of these new customers and we go back through our data and we found out that say 90% of those customers aren't new, but just capturing coupon codes. This isn't a, a time to go back to the acquisition marketing team and say they screwed up. It's to say, how do we improve our data and our metrics so that if we were to run a campaign that brought in what we thought were new customers but they weren't, how could we catch it? What should we avoid in future campaigns? What did we learn about our best practices? and that way the acquisition team can learn as opposed to feeling like they're under fire and say, look how much money you cost us in in margins and free coupon codes that we didn't gain anything. But instead just saying, how do we institutionalize those findings so that we don't repeat these mistakes with other programs like them?
0: It's a really interesting insight. And a lot of times people, especially when you have a lot of background in data, it's almost dirty pleasure to fit everything to a metric. When you lose sight of metrics are especially from your background measurements and you're measuring something not trying to fit something into a box per se so that's a really interesting take and i have to say when you're dealing with measurements all the time a lot of your performance not only as a new employer as a lot of our audience will be but also a more senior employer or employee you're basically measured against your performance on a metric just like marketing or just like a campaign is Do you have any insight into how marketing, especially up and coming CMOs that I hope we have here tuning in, they're constantly almost defending, I'd say, their measures of marketing against a more finance background or how does this relate really to the money of our company? How do you really balance that?
1: First, it's a recognition, just as I said, other companies struggle with this problem. The earliest quote that I was able to find was somewhere around. Uh, the early 1900s, where there was a piece written about, still at that time in their in their respective titles, uh, the money didn't agree with the marketing. You know, there's this marketing claim that we're driving all the sales, and the money being like, "Look, we invested in a great product; it would sell itself." Um, and just that distrust growing, and so I, I'm not as naive to think that this problem is going to be resolved even in my lifetime. I, but I hope these two functions can come together a little bit closer. What do we see happening now? Well, we actually see something which is again, and this is part of the interest. This is why I'm so excited about this adoption of lifetime value, but here's how to picture it. If you have say a spreadsheet and that's really how the data comes out, you have a spreadsheet of all your customers in one column. So customer one, two, three, four, maybe it's their email address. And then the second column, you have their lifetime value. How much are they worth uh, over the course of their lifetime to your business and then discounted to net present value. So here's the value of all your customers and for everyone that you have. If you sum up that information, if you sum up that value, you effectively come up with, well, here's how much all of our customers are worth. right? This is how much our our customer base is worth. We take the lifetime value of all of our individual customers, we add it all up, and now what we can effectively have is how valuable our customers are as an asset. Our most valuable asset to our business is our customers, and now we can start to put a value towards it. Not how much they spend today, right how much they're going to spend in the future and we reduce that back this is how much this asset is worth to us and what we see now our CFOs are adopting that type of language because they're able to look at the marketing function and to say here's the asset that you control our customers how much were you able to develop that asset if I gave you five million dollars this quarter to invest were you able to develop that asset How much are they worth now? And it's great because we're no longer looking at juicing in quarter sales, but we're also taking the shackles off CMOs to say you can only drive short term metrics. Now, if you're investing in retention and development programs, even if it means people aren't going to buy right away, it may be several weeks, several months, we start to see the value of it. If you acquire two customers and you went from acquiring a poor customer to acquiring a great customer that may spend the same amount today, but in that future, that better customer is going to stick around now that asset's going to value it and so they almost feel liberated to say now i can use all the tools at my disposal to really build great honest customer relationships and i know the cfos will be able to look at that as well because that's the language that they're adopting so we're finally seeing this intersection between the two now it's far from perfect there are some things that still need to be explored like like brand behavior we're still figuring that out But it's still better than just saying, what did you do for me today? What did you do for me this quarter? Which, and this ties this entire conversation together, goes back to that short-term manipulation to say, what can we put our hand on to kind of bring everybody in, but may harm our business in the long term.
0: And speaking of problems that will probably never be solved, the (laughs) valuation of a brand is probably up up there for most CMOs. (laughs) It's a great point to be able to almost close the language gap in order to Give what uh, a cfo or someone else with that background might expect from the marketing side and being able to invest in something that grows over time hopefully that's a great point
1: and really by the way you brought it up i mean being able to bring these functions closer into alignment we talk a lot about incremental change i'm not saying it's perfect i'm not saying that the, the cmos and cfos now see eye to eye and everything's perfect but it brings them incrementally closer where they both feel the cfos feel like they're getting an honest accounting of what's what marketing is doing and the marketers feel like they can start to use all the tools at their disposal not simply hitting that one short-term metric that the cfo is traditionally
0: measured by Neil, if you'd like to give your spiel on converted and why listeners why readers should tune in
1: i mean the the easiest way to put it is, is probably one of the best roi investments that you can make it is 15 years of working across thousands of companies distilled down into what's really a four or five hour conversation. I say that because that's, I think, how long the audiobook is, so I imagine that that's the same pace that people read, although I am a bit of a fast talker, (laughs) but when you think about it, I think the book is going to, the book is $27 or so US for a four hour, five hour conversation of some of the best practices happening right now in data all with the intention of making it simple and fun and to building that intuition for marketers so that you leave and you say this is what's really happening this is where the potential is this is for the future of the business that's why i'm so excited about it is that it's just able to lay that out for you and to give you and it's designed as a guidebook as well which is phenomenal it's got this this wonderfully like compact size so that you can carry it in your bag and all the chapters not only focus on a specific subject but are done in a way that you can literally take a picture or cut that chapter out and hand it over to somebody else in your organization and they could just improve their function to say let's focus here's best in class for acquisition here's best in class for testing here's best in class for people we need to hire going forward and so that way you can almost choose your own adventure through this book you'll probably want to read the entire thing end to end that's what's been happening with the people with the pre-order versions at least But give it a shot. I think you'll really enjoy what you see.
0: Well, it was a fantastic read from just the introduction that you can find online. And hopefully the full book, I can't wait to get my hands on it as well. Neil, it's it's written like you're kind of talking to the reader as an actual person, which coming from a data perspective, from a business perspective is definitely not easy to accomplish. So as an avid reader myself, like really did uh, fall in love with this book. So I can't wait to get my hands on it.
1: Eric, I appreciate
0: that. Thank you. No worries. And thank you so much for coming out, Neil, for the podcast. Thank you for turning in and really appreciate your time. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks again.